Romans chapter 12. There's a team of researchers from three different universities that uh, basically produced the results of a study that they've been conducting uh, where they've identified a phenomenon called the IKEA effect. Okay? What they did is they're just trying to figure out why do millions of Americans have kind of this wild fascination with this very successful Swedish company called IKEA, many of which the products you have to have like some assembly required. So they, they did a series of experiments. What they did is they um, had these participants come, and some of them they had them build IKEA products. Some did fold origami and kind of make those little projects like that. Others did Legos and put together sets. And this is what they found. The study concluded that participants who experienced uh, these events where they had hands-on involvement had an increased evaluation of their self-made products. Even though they were amateurish creations, they saw them to be of equal value to those that were done by experts. Okay? It's called the IKEA effect. And so they actually found that when we personally get involved in a project, we have a far greater affection for the end product, even when we know it's not perfect. So like one of the illustrations they had was like a table. And so you get your IKEA table, and it's, it's going to take you about two days to assemble this, and you get all these parts, and you put it all together. And even though you know that one of the links is just not quite right, you love the product, and you think very highly of it. You would think of it as if an expert built it. Now, your spouse, on the other hand, or your neighbor or friend, they take a look at the table, and they're like, there's something that's not quite right with that. But that doesn't seem to affect you. The fact that you had personal involvement in it seems to make all the difference. And that is pretty fascinating when you think of this IKEA effect. Because that effect has implications for our relationships, especially a church, our church. When you invest time, energy, finances, skills, resources, and you do so from the heart, it changes your evaluation of what you have. If you have little involvement and you're pretty superficial and you keep people at arm's length, then your level of experience and value to the church, it's slight. Why? Because you've invested little. On the other hand, though, when you do pour yourself in and you are involved and you are engaged, it changes your perception. Now, what does this look like? What specifically does love look like in a church? If we were to really care for one another and embrace one another and love one another, what does that look like? What does love with skin look like in a local church? That's what you find when you come to Romans chapter 12. As we've been making our way through the book of Romans, Romans has emphasized the gospel and how you and I are made right with God by believing in Christ. And Romans 12 then begins that our lives are to be transformed from the inside out. We're no longer being conformed to this world, but God is literally pouring out and his love through us and shaping our lives to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so verse 9, as we looked at last week, actually tells us what, what this, why this takes place. And he says, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. And if you want to see what sincere love really looks like flowing out of your life, we talked about that C can be an acronym. S stands for understanding that it is sourced in our relationship with God and his love. 
God is the one who actually places love in our hearts. It's like it's a seed that he desires to have flourish and be expressed out of our lives. And you'll need to know this, that the secret of loving well is knowing God's love well. The more you know about God's love for you and believe it, the more that you're actually transformed by it, and you then start to express it. So S stands for being sourced in our relationship with God and His love. E is for experienced in our personal lives, where we are learning to live whole. It's not as if God pours out His love into us, and that it just kind of like flows through us, but we don't personally experience that we're just agents of God's love. Actually, God wants us whole. He wants us to interface with our emotions and our motives, interfacing with our relationship with Christ, so that you and I personally experience this kind of love. That means that we're asking questions like, God, why do I feel this way, or what's going on? Would you help me? Would you give me grace and strength so that our love is truly authentic, deep, meaningful, from the heart, like he says in 12.9, without hypocrisy. It is authentic. And once we experience this kind of love, we have then the potential of expressing it. And that's what the second E is, expressing it in our relationship with others, where we're really loving others, where we understand that we were made for love. To receive it, to experience it, to express it. In essence, what God is seeking to do among Christians is that we incarnate the message of Christ. We literally live lives of love. So what does that look like? Well, that's what we find in verses 10 and following. And he begins by saying, be devoted, verse 10, to one another in brotherly love. There is a sense that we truly love people with a family-like love. And both the word devoted and brotherly love both have the idea of this fond family affection. Okay, The word for Philadelphia comes from Philadelphos, which is the idea of brotherly love. So Philadelphia is supposed to be the city of brotherly love. Whether it is or not, I don't know. I guess it's, it's still out there. But it's, that's, it's got a, it started out good. They had high aspirations for the city. They called it Philadelphia. Well, God wants us to love with a brotherly love the people of faith. And just like in a family, you're going to have differences. I mean, like, Maybe your parents live or believe things that are different. Um, maybe your daughter or your kid is going in a different direction. They still are your daughter. These are still my parents. I am still committed to them. Why? Because I love them. There is a tie of family love, and God says that's supposed to exist in the church, that we love one another and we do so from the heart. There is a warm affection that we care for the needs and the people in our families. John, when he wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, said this, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a what? Anybody know? 1 John 4, 20? I think I heard it. Liar. Did you hear that? If you say, I love God, we just got done singing songs about the love of God and loving God, right? But you hate your brother? John says, there is a radical disconnect. You're actually a liar. That's impossible. And he goes on to say, if you, you know, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, when we love God, it will have a reciprocating effect where we'll begin to be loving others with this brotherly love. 
this flies in the face of this kind of rugged individualism that seems to be so cherished in our culture. Like, I don't need anybody or anything. I can go it alone. I don't need the body of Christ. I can have church with my TV or just out in the forest. I don't need to be around other Christians. That is foreign to the New Testament. Because you and I are called to love, to express love. It is a brotherly love. That means that we will allow for weaknesses in people and imperfections. We're going to communicate. We deal with problems. Why do we want to deal with problems? Why don't we avoid them? Because we love. We want to express genuine love. We affirm others. There is a strong commitment to loyalty. Why? Because we are called to brotherly love. And we do so in the strength of Christ. So he says, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. If you want to see another trait of that, look what he says, verse 10. Give preference to one another in honor. This has the idea that you respect or value an individual. When someone speaks, you give them careful consideration. There's feelings of care, respect. You demonstrate gratitude. Why? Because we love one another. There is a sense of commitment. We appreciate, we admire. When someone experiences some sort of accomplishment, we can actually rejoice in that. Wouldn't that be all envious and, and jealous? Because why? We love people. That's what it looks like. You honor them. And to really understand honoring people, it's really deeply rooted in the theology of the fact that people are made in the image of God. Imago Dei. Now, You've heard of that, like, okay, we're made in the image of God, but what in the world does that mean? Image of God. Well, let me just tell you, the image of God, when we speak of that, it speaks of the fact that there is a resemblance to God in a limited degree in our rationality, our personality, creativity, that we have an eternal soul, that we're able to experience emotion, exercise will, and express love. Though we are fallen, we live in a fallen world, we've inherited a fallen condition from Adam, we are still made in the image of God. Every single person is. And when we see people as made in the image of God, that changes how you and I interface with them. I mean, try this on. Try seeing people and thinking, of them, that's right, you're, you're made in the image of God. Try it in the church. Try it with the kids you go to school with or the students at the university, or at work, or the next time you're in the mall. Or the next time you're just filling up your car, and you're putting gas in tank, you see that long line of people that are doing the same thing. Just think, you know what? Each one of those people, they're made in the image of God. I mean, don't you get all caught up with, like, that guy aced me out of the spot. I would have gassed up my tank two minutes sooner, you know, and you're all mad at them. Think, they are made in the image of God. That changes everything about how we start to relate to people. That is especially true in the church. He says, I want you to express brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. We honor people when we see them for who they are, as made in the image of God. Yeah, they're flawed, but so are you, right? And so we are called to give preference to one another. We're going to put their needs before our own. We're going to consider and listen to what they have to say, and that's what we do. And notice what else he says. You want to see another trait of true love? Look at verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence. Meaning that your service is not half-hearted or done in a lazy manner, but actually there's an eagerness and an earnestness to what you're doing. And he further goes on to explain that. He says, he says not only are you not lagging in diligence, but you are 
fervent in spirit. And this has the idea, fervency, of like literally boiling over. It's used of water that would boil over. Okay? You know, you know how it is. You put some water, you put it on the stove, and you crank that thing on high. And pretty soon, guess what happens? It starts bubbling over, and then it can literally overflow. It's, it's a lot of fun. It makes a big mess. makes some great sounds, right? But it's boiling over. Well, that's what God wants in terms of love. From our heart, that it literally flows out of us into others. That there is an intimacy, relational connection with Christ that leads to a care and concern to others. It's not lagging behind, but that there's a sense of enthusiasm, of passion, of connection. Now, I'll tell you that fatigue can set in. You can feel worn out. I mean, that happens. And yet we're, we're always fighting against this because we really do want to love and connect and serve from the heart. And so what we want to do is realize that, that God has called us to this kind of love, and he really can supply it. Without kind of fervency, if this is not a reality, if we are lagging behind in diligence, if we don't have fervency in spirit, what happens is, like, for instance, like in giving to the Lord, it's like, oh, that's just a, like a bill, like a water bill. Oh, okay. Or like when it comes to an opportunity to serve, like maybe you have today or this week, maybe you're going to be presenting like a devotional or a Bible lesson you're teaching. Instead of like coming to that, I am bringing the living word of God to these individuals. It's just like a quick look at my study Bible, I'll read something, and I'm just going to kind of blow my way through it, and there's no heart to it at all. That's not what he's after. He wants us genuine, loving, caring, committed, a fervency that comes from him. And how does that happen? How do you actually serve like that? Well, that is answered in the exact same verse. Do you see at the end of verse 11? When you see yourself serving the Lord, that changes how you go about what you do. Oftentimes what happens is our service becomes more about us and what we get out of it and what people are thinking about me than it is serving the Lord. If you want to see fervency reinstated, reinvigorated in your life, see your life as a ministry unto Him. This week, your job, which is a major part of your ministry, how you interact, what you do, what you're doing inside this church, what you're doing inside our, in our community, do so as serving the Lord and do it with a sense of fervency and energy because that communicates love. There's a guy by the name of Benjamin Zander, and he wrote a book called The Art of Possibility. At the time, he was the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic. He was also a professor of, at the New England Conservatory of Music. He had one particular student that was just brilliant, and he's an excellent pianist. He could play Chopin. He could do it perfectly. But there was just something that was missing. I mean, this guy was super sharp. He understood everything about the music. He could articulate it. But something about when he played just seemed earthbound, even though it was done without air. And then he noticed it. The, the guy was missing the emotional energy, which is really the true language of music. He played almost like a robot, sat very straight. Everything was technically correct, and yet it was missing the essential element that what makes music music 
the emotional vitality and the response. And so what he did is he said, you know what I want you to do? I want you to put your whole body into this. I want you to catch the wave of the music and to express it with your life. And so he encourages him to do this, and the music literally took flight. Even some of the people that listened just gasped, because all of a sudden it connected. It was music as it was intended, and the energy was captured. And I tell you this because that's what God is seeking to do in our life. That there's an enthusiasm that we engage from the heart, that we're not just stoic and statuesque, but that we care from the heart. There's an enthusiasm in our service, and when that enthusiasm wanes, it's because perhaps we're not seeing ourselves as serving the Lord. Then he goes on to explain in verse 12 what true love looks like. It is rejoicing in hope. It is to understand that we don't have to fear our future because we understand that it is in God's hands. Now, in our English, the word hope means basically wishful thinking, like, I hope the stock market rises. I hope things get better at work. I hope it doesn't rain today. My kids are thinking that they hope it snows on Tuesday, you know. But it's all wishful thinking, right? They just want a snow day. They don't know if it's going to happen or not, but they sure like it to happen. The Bible doesn't use hope that way. The Bible uses hope as an absolute certainty. So, for instance, like the return of Christ, do you know how it's referred to in Scripture? As the blessed hope. It's absolutely going to happen. He came the first time as prophesied. He promised to return. He will return. We know it's going to happen. It is a blessed hope. And notice what he says when he talks about hope. We are to be rejoicing in hope. Finding our joy not in our circumstances, but in Christ and his promises. You see, we find our happiness oftentimes in our happenings, right? Our circumstances. So if things are good, circumstantially, to our evaluation, we are, what, happy. Things are not so good, things aren't working out right, then what? We're not happy. It's interesting when you look at the etymology of happiness, do you know where it comes from? It comes from happenings. Whatever's happening, well, that we now basically associate happenings, well, if they're good happenings, that leads to my happiness. For the Christian, though, we don't ultimately find our joy in our circumstances. Though they may make us happy, we find our joy in Christ. Our joy is rooted in hope, not in circumstances. That's why even when we go through great difficulty, we can still have hope, and we can even rejoice in hope, because we know Christ is in it with us. And notice, just right on the heels of that, of rejoicing in hope, that there is a joy, that we encourage one another with this kind of hope, there is a persevering in tribulation. The idea is that we go through even the difficulties. The word tribulation had the idea of being put under pressure. This was the word that they used for taking olives and they would crush it in a press where olive oil would flow out of the olives. Or grapes that were crushed and the grape juice came out of the grapes. It was said that they went through a tribulation, a pressing down. Well, guess what? In life, we go through tribulations, physical hardship, suffering, distress, Life has a way of bringing crushing, right? Like, let me just, I know some of you are trying to forget this. Let me just tell you some of the crushings that we kind of go through. 
like the pressure of deadlines or economy. People's expectations. Can't that over, almost be overwhelming and crushing at times? Workplace politics, demands, home and auto repairs, relationships, intense issues that you face, failing health, job loss, grief, divorce, persecution, major life events. It's like pressure. And we get squeezed. And it, what they are, they're tribulations. And what he's saying here is rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, not giving up. You see, what will happen is when you and I go through tribulations, and no one is exempt, every person faces it, and especially Christians, we go through tribulations, it's either going to make you bitter or you're going to become more conformed to the image of Christ. Now, I, I see this persevering in tribulation. I don't happen to like sufferings. I don't like it when you suffer. I don't like it when I have to go through all these difficulties. And yet, we can, because of our relationship with Christ, do so with grace and a calm dignity. But let's be honest. We struggle with this as humans, right? We... It's hard to understand suffering's place. I mean, you see it in the scriptures. You read the Bible, you see that we're called to suffer, we're called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who gave us an example of suffering. Peter writes about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 3 to share in the sufferings of Christ. But this is the problem. We're called to suffer, but suffering is painful. And frankly, God is able to do something about our sufferings, and he's good, and oftentimes he doesn't change it the way we want it. And that leads to some pretty confusing issues in our heart. What we need to do is have a biblical perspective on suffering. We've talked about this before. In fact, we've even addressed it in the book of Romans. But when we look at our suffering through the lens of Scripture, things begin to change. For instance, we see that suffering produces an eternal perspective. Suffering has a way of breaking us from living just for the here and now to build a healthy yearning for Christ, his kingdom, and the things to come. It like breaks us away from being so critically attached to this world where there is a healthy longing for the world to come. Suffering also produces humility and can make us more like Christ. Remember Psalm 37, God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. What happens is that when we are crushed, we go through these tribulations, it brings about humility in our life. Remember Paul talked about in Romans 8, 28 and 29, that God is conforming us to the image of Christ? Do you know that? Do you know one of the ways he does that? It's through difficulty. It brings us to a place where we find ourselves becoming more like Christ. I'll give you this principle. God is more concerned with our humility than our comfort. He's more concerned with character development that looks like Christ, that comes through Christ, than it is our creature comforts. And sometimes he allows and brings tribulation to do just that. Suffering also produces dependence and opportunity. Suffering brings dependence upon Christ because you get to places where you don't have anything to offer. It's not up to you. You can't do anything. You are trusting completely on Christ. And it also 
puts you in a position where you can receive love, care, and concern from other people. God wants you to do that. I know that, oh, I don't, I don't want anybody to care for me, I don't want anybody to pray for me, anything like that. That's not healthy, that's not holy, and that's not mature. God will address that, and sometimes he does so through suffering. So that we realize, you know what, I am a part of this body. And there's something about my heart that needs to learn to receive. And then finally, suffering produces empathy. And you learn to really care about people. You know, you go through this life, and you get beat up, and you get broken down, and you get crushed like a wine press or an olive press. All of a sudden, you start to really care about people when they go through their sufferings. That whole attitude like, get real, just cowboy up on this one, get moving through it. You realize, you know what? There's brokenness, and it hurts, and it's hard. And those who have gone through it, their soul has been enlarged. Their heart is just greater and greater, and they connect at a heart level. There is maturity in Christ. Where did that all come from? Where do these people that are just so deep and so in love and have a way of just embracing and coming alongside and connecting and communicating that kind of concern, where do they come from? They come from the fires of tribulation and suffering. Well, how in the world are we supposed to make it? I mean, where do you find the strength to face the impossible? How do you care when your strength is gone? Well, you don't want to miss the end of the verse. Look at verse 12. We are devoted to prayer. We understand that we have a lifeline with God. Prayer is communicating to God, bringing our heart, our soul, our concerns to him, we have this lifeline, and so we passionately ask God. We talk to him about the situations. When we are praying, we are loving. And so we're devoted to it. We're asking God for wisdom, for strength, for guidance. And friends, let me tell you what does love look like when in, the, in terms of prayer. Not only are you praying for people, but you learn to pray with people. And, and let me just tell you what this looks like. Someone tells you, maybe this happens like after church even today, or at work, or some other venue where someone's like, you're at Walmart, and they're like, man, things are not going well. And you're like, whoa, what's going on? And they tell you about their situation. Do this. Hey, hey, do you mind if I just pray with you now? And just take 30 seconds. You don't have to make a big scene, but you just pray with them. And you lift up their requests. I have never had anyone turn me down. I've prayed with people in ATB and Walmart. It doesn't seem to matter. And you can do it. You just, but you learn this. Now, you're like, whoa, are you serious? Man, I would just go through my shirt. I would be sweating profusely. Just even the thought of doing that. But we've got deodorant, man. You're going to make it through this. And guess what? You will get better at it. But what if that was a way of life? Like in our church. Share a concern, you share a commitment. And we could pray with each other. Why? Because we're devoted to prayer. Where does that come from? It comes from Romans chapter 12, where we are loving each other without hypocrisy. We are not lagging behind indulgence. There's a fervency in our spirit. We are devoted to prayer. I heard of this. Uh, Brandon and Stephanie Clausen told me about what they were doing with their family. They apparently learned this from Brad and Jessica Cook. But do you know at Christmas time? Like you get a lot of Christmas cards and, you know, those five-page letters of what's going on in people's lives. You know what I'm saying? Yes? You get those things too? And what they did is they took all their Christmas cards, they put a hole through it, they punched it, and then they put a ring in it. And this became their, like their 
prayer guide. And so they have this sitting on their kitchen table, and what they do is each day they pray for that individual or that family. Stephanie apparently sends an email saying, hey, is there anything that we could pray for you? And she wrote me an email how she's surprised at what people will say and tell you when they know that you're going to pray for them. And so they do. Throughout the day, as a family, they try to remember and they pray for this. He said, this has really been a wonders in their prayer life because it's gone from kind of a self-centered kid prayer to you're far more focused on others. That's what it looks like to be devoted in prayer. You want to see something else about what true love looks like? Look at verse 13. You are contributing to the needs of the saints. You're not just aware of them, but that you actually contribute. Koinoneo is the word here. The noun form koinonia has the idea of fellowship, communion. That your care and concern actually leads to a commitment that will step in and try to help tangibly. You are contributing to the needs of the saints. Or it could be translated, ready to share. In fact, it is. Remember in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and following? Paul writes this. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. That would be everyone in this room. If you look at your income compared to the rest of the world, we are very wealthy. So we're talking all of us. He says, instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Do you know that? That's in the Bible. He's saying, don't put your hope in your money, in your stuff, in your things, in your IRA accounts, your mutual funds. Don't don't let that be the center of your hope. But God does say, I've given you these things to enjoy. Really, it's kind of like we got them singing. Every blessing you give, I turn back to praise. Did you remember singing that? And so you do, you thank God. Why does he bless your life? He does want you to enjoy these things because he, in enjoying them, you, you express enjoyment and pleasure and joy in God who gave them to you. Don't get fixed on them. Don't orient your life around them. But you can't enjoy them. In fact, you're scripturally admonished to do so. But then he says in the very next verse, instruct them to do good. Who? The people that got stuff, right? To be rich in good works, to be generous, and there's our word. Ready to share. Contributing to the needs of the saints that you care. It's kind of like the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who do you help? When, you're, when you encounter real needs... To the degree that you're able to be involved in this particular process, what we do is we contribute to that. By the way, do you happen to know the name of our church? Seriously. Okay, some of you have been coming for 30 years. Okay, this is Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. This is our name. Contributing to the needs of the saints. To care. To share with people that are in need. We have, in our church, we actually have a benevolence fund. We, like, never talk about it. Uh, money is always there, but when, through your giving, we quietly meet needs in our church. Some of them are pretty significant, and we never advertise or anything like that. We have some people that are involved, and we hear of needs that are going to our church, and we do that. Why? Because we want this to be a reality. We want to be a church that loves. And notice what else he says in verse 13. Not only are we contributing to the needs of the saints, but we are 
practicing hospitality. Literally, it could be translated pursuing the love of strangers. You see, in the New Testament times, first of all, there weren't a lot of inns, not a lot of motels. And the ones that did exist were dangerous places to be. It's not evil, like a lot of bad things took place there. They were scarce, and they were expensive. So what Christians did is they welcomed believers into their home, even if they really didn't even know them. And they would provide for them a place to stay, food to eat. Why would they do that? Because it is the love of the brethren. It is Philadelphia. It is not only contributing to the needs of saints, but it is to practice hospitality, to pursue that kind of love, to care, even though I don't know a lot about you, I want to know, I want you to know that I love you. It is the bond of Christ. It is the work of the Spirit. So how do you know? How do you know if your love really comes from pure motives? What is the acid test on what you're doing and why you're doing it? Well, this is the test. How do you respond when you are treated like a servant? How do you do when no one thanks you or shows appreciation? You give of yourself. You give financially. You make big-time investments, and you're, like, blown off. No one even says anything, even seems to recognize. No one says thank you. I mean, sure, you weren't waiting for a skywriter in the plane. Like, thank you and your name up there for this. But it sure would be nice if if someone would have said something or written a note or a card. But it, it doesn't happen. How do you respond when you're treated like a servant? I wish I could tell you that when I've had tests like this, that I've been great, stellar, but it hasn't been. There are times I've I feel like I, I significantly have put myself out there for certain situations or people, difficulties. I've, I've used like several days of my vacation when I was supposed to be enjoying time with my family, dealing with a particular crisis. And then I, and I noticed, like, man, I'm, how is this how And there's like, not, they didn't even say thank you. In fact, it just didn't even seem like it mattered. But it was a great sacrifice. And when I see that happen in my life, it's like, heart check. And I ask myself, well, who exactly are you serving? Because when I serve Christ, it changes my expectations of what I might have for others. Maybe you can relate. You see, your outlook will determine your outcome. And if our outlook isn't serving the Lord, like the text says, all of a sudden, this gets kind of twisted. Pretty soon, we're running into pity parties, and we're whining and complaining, and we're grumbling, and we're losing perspective. Do you know why? Because it's no longer serving the Lord, but in some weird way, it's, it's all about us. That's why this text is so radical. It is changing how we live because it is changing how we love. Now, I want you to know, introspection, I, I actually believe it's just part of being human. We're, we're always going to have times where we're just thinking about things, things, and processing, and not liking it. The problem is, is when we always live like this. This is a long-term way of life. That's where you move into discouragement, if not even depression. And I'll tell you, when we're talking about love, the world, the flesh, and the enemy are against.
chance, us sharing and experiencing this kind of love. If your flesh doesn't want it, it wants isolation, individualism. The world is against this sort of Christianity that comes that is vibrancy and full of life and full of love. And the enemy is determined to end it. But God says, I want it flourishing. And so it can as we focus on the supernatural power of Christ. It is living out the implications of the gospel in our lives. It is precious in God's sight and is what makes a church mature, healthy, and well. And friends, I want you to have a vision for the church. A vision of this kind of love. But may I remind you of the Ikea effect? It's not going to be perfect. Do you know that? We're fallen people living in a fallen world. There are going to be a lot of problems at times. But if you are willing to invest, when you care, when you make those kind of investments, guess what happens? You value the kind of love and the unity that God is bringing in our church. You see, love is the bond that brings life to our body. A little while ago, Time Magazine ran a very interesting article about former President George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, Some of you may be aware of this, but during World War II, he was a bomber. And he had actually been shot down by the Japanese by anti-aircraft fire. And he went down, and he was eventually rescued. Well, this article talks about this return journey where President, former President Bush goes to the very site where he had been rescued. And while he was there, it was arranged for some Japanese soldiers who had witnessed this rescue to meet him and to communicate with him. And through a translator, this one guy who saw the rescue told President Bush that one of his fellow soldiers said this when they witnessed the rescue of George Bush. He said, Surely America will win the war if they care so much about the life of one pilot. That one pilot ended up becoming the President of the United States and the father of another. And friends, so will we. When we learn to care like this, Most certainly will win the war because we're united with Christ and his compassion and his love flows through our life. And see, love is the bond that brings life to our body. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of scripture. God, you know us. Some of these description here is not always what we have experienced. And yet, we know that you are fashioning and forming your work in us. And so we ask that you would do just that. That we would be everything as a body of believers, as a church should be. Everything you've intended for fellowship. And Lord, for the person or people that have come here today who have never trusted in Jesus as Savior from their sin, but they want this kind of love and these kind of relationships and be these kind of people, that they simply pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from self and my sin And I trust Jesus as my Savior, and I ask Him to be Lord of my life. And God, for all of us, may this kind of love be manifested in our life, in the life of this church, for your glory. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.